Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, episode number 26, and we're going to get into a fabulous topic, why change fails. Good to see you, Ben. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Ian. I'm a bit tired, and that gets me on to what I've noticed. I'm busy, the companies I'm working with, they're all busy. The level of demand and activity out there seems to be really going through the roof. Mm-hmm. There's a good sentiment, a good confidence amongst the businesses I'm I'm working with. And simple as that. Yeah. And I'm a bit I'm a bit tired on the shoulders of that. <laughs> yeah, I can see that in you and I can see that in so many people. And I think people are genuinely tired. They've come through 18 months of really hard work, a lot of thinking, hardly any holidays, a lot on their shoulders, especially if they're employing lots of people. And I've seen lots of companies in great shape now but with a lot of the leadership team and a lot of the people looking a bit frazzled around the edges. Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly, I think, uh, in some companies, there's a problem that, of course, they were being cautiously optimistic during the second half of the, the pandemic. And for some, that extended to not going too fast on recruitment. Mm hmm. And, and they've been slightly caught out, I think. Demand has really, really picked up. The recruitment market has, has heated up. And if they haven't already got people on board, they're finding that a struggle now. So there's teams out there that are, that are really stretched. And they're probably looking at sort of three, four months of being overstretched before they get their head count where it needs to be again. So yeah, there's there's definitely some frazzle going on. I agree. <laughs> so Ben, what are you recommending for your clients and indeed for yourself to get through these frazzled moments? <laughs> well, I think one thing is we can only go as fast as we can go. So if we, if we are in that position where recruiting is, is hard, well, then we sail a steady course with the team we've got. We go hard as we can on the recruitment, but we allow ourselves some breathing space, knowing that the pace will will pick up in the autumn. So let you know. Let's be realistic. Let's not mm. let's not overload ourselves. If we if we haven't got the team in place, that's number one. When we got the team, that's when to to pick up the pace mm. uh, a bit more. That that's one. Other companies, other teams that have got the people on board that they that they need then i guess we're you know we're into the you know the the normal reminder to to look after the people Mm, mm. that's right i think i think we have to remind people of that i've got a few people who have got out the habit of going for a run in the morning the thing that used to keep them sane and gave them creative ideas some of those have got back into the even if it's a short commute where they used to listen to audible or you know sort of check out of the the office head and I think this is the other thing, of course, isn't it? Working from home all that time, we tended to just work more hours. So I think going back to the office actually helps in many respects. So I think the health and well-being, the, the personal life, I think it's important that, that I, I think up for me anyway, I'm challenging my clients to make sure they're trying to build that back in now and not just keep on that on that wheel that's going around at a hell of a pace for a lot of them. Yeah, I guess as well, simply remembering that we are still in the pandemic mm. Mm. and we're not back into the offices yet not in the the normal way many people have got 
kids out of school at home at the moment. Two of three of mine are homeschooling remote learning right right now. Things are still pretty disruptive and there's change happening because of COVID. People are unsure of their holiday plans. We were talking before recording today that British Airways keeps keeps moving my flights. We want to go to to, to Spain. We have family there. And my wife lost her father, so it's important that we Mm. we spend some time with family. And it's turning into a really big effort just to pin down the flights and yeah, and manage manage that. And people look forward to their holidays. And Ian, how about you? What's caught your notice? Well, I interesting. I like like most of the country. I watched the Euro final on Sunday evening at some friends and was very frustrated and disappointed of course but you know of course this group of men are a wonderful a wonderful group of men led by a great manager and that doesn't go away they still are and I think they achieved an awful lot to get to the final but I looked at the final and I thought it reminded me of the the rugby world cup final of two years ago where what I saw play out was two teams who got to two different finals and when they got there they seem to lack energy and intensity on the pitch and nothing was done about that you know i saw england suddenly go onto the back foot after about 20 minutes in the football and i thought hmm what's going on here and because i thought that you're not really gonna win against italy on the back foot i mean despite that we got all the way through to the penalties which was I think we should have won it in, in, in full time. I think Gareth Southgate's been terrific, but I think he could have done, and I think because that is to change the energy, change the intensity halfway through the first half. And you don't do that by one play, but you do that probably by two or three players. And so I think tactically that it, it didn't go as well as it could have done. And the other thing I think um, would be interesting to play out is Obviously, when we went to the penalties and, and Gareth Southgate came out straight away after us and said, I take full responsibility, I chose the penalty takers. And he chose them on people who are good at penalties, which is what you would do, isn't it? However, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the guy who took the last penalty, who plays for Arsenal, was Sacco. And he's 19. And he was on the biggest stage of his career in the final penalty... To, uh, and in a final that we hadn't won a football final since 1966. Now, whether that weighed on his shoulders or whether he was able to focus on the process, which is what the psychologist would tell him to do, I don't know. But I felt, I felt it was maybe a step too far to put this huge responsibility on a 19-year-old. And I felt there were some other people who... Southgate probably should have chosen to to take those penalties. Sacco yeah, was twenty one, so or, or Saka could have could have taken the first or the second rather yeah. than rather than the fifth. When yeah. you know, by which time, as you say, mm. the the entire outcome of of the of the Euros was on his shoulders. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So that's just just my view. I, I put a lot of stall in leadership teams on energy and. I think when people come into a room, you know, it's beholden on a leader to create energy in the room. We talked about that in meetings before and getting the energy around topics. And I just felt when you see the energy drop, you've got to recognize that, notice it and think, how do I change the energy? And I think that's something that wasn't there uh, in abundance. Something else I noticed and 
somehow you've got me got me thinking about this and you know I'm not I'm not huge into football but I did watch I did watch the final and a few of the matches along the way and you said as you began talking about the final you know uh, how many great men there were there mm. and and I was struck when you said it and when I when I was watching and there's not a woman in sight mm. Not amongst the coaches, even or or the physios. Maybe I wasn't wasn't looking looking mm. hard enough. But that's something else we would say to any leadership team is make sure we've got good gender diversity at the top level in the company because each of those people is going to call out a different thing, and yeah, maybe that would make a difference uh, as well. Mm. Maybe there's kind of a, a group think that that went on during the finals, so. You know, that drop in energy wasn't addressed. Maybe we need some different perspectives mm. Mm. around the team. I mean, you look at, we, we, we look at other sports and you don't see the same. No. You know, F- Formula One is still, all the drivers are male, but you look at the people around them and there's there's lots of great females around them. They need to go further, of course, but mm. but you see the diversity. Same in... Yeah, same in the tennis. I mean, tennis is, you know, as an equally strong male and female top flight, doesn't it? But again, around each player, you see both genders. Yeah, you're right. Uh, of course, I read the book um, Fearless by Dr. Pippa Grange. And she was, I think I spoke about her before. She was the, she's a great um, sports psychologist and she worked with the England team during the last World Cup. So she was working in that team with Gareth Southgate and, and the guys. And I think her contract ended with England soon after the last World Cup. And she's attributed actually with taking the fear out of taking a penalty. Mm. And I think you could see that, but this wasn't fear of taking a penalty. This was just so much intensity on their shoulders. But I think you're right. This cognitive diversity we've spoken about before. I, I don't see any any women there. I'm sure some of the listeners will write in and say, "Oh, they've got a couple there," and I'm sure they have, but we we didn't see them. That's for sure. No, no. Yeah. Shall we crack on, Ian? We we've talked about that game for for long enough, and today's episode is why change fails. And Ian changes your gig. Well, it's, it's more your gig than it is my gig. You know quite a bit about quite a bit about change. So lead the way. Well, there's there's so much to pick through here, and as usual, I've probably got too much on my on my notes, and I'm, I'm sure you have too. Some some obvious probably to listeners, some less obvious. When I was looking back through some of the programs I've run and some of the stuff I've written on this subject you know well I remember doing the initial research on this and there's a guy called Kurt Lewin who way back when started talking about you know something is frozen in your business then you need to unfreeze that and and decide what should happen and then you refreeze it you go into this new state of, of of something that's fixed and of course that doesn't work at all now. We've gone into this perpetual whitewater, as people talk about, where change is coming at us constantly. We've got to have the capacity and the capability to recognize what's going on in the world and then some systems and processes that help us attack that change. And of course, change doesn't work unless we take people with us. So I suppose that's my, that's my top line on change. And then there's lots of models that I'm sure we're going to we're going to delve into. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the world has changed since 
Lewin's work, since Cotter's work. And you, you you read their stuff, and it and it's great, and it's still useful. But it kind of has a backdrop quite often of you know the organization being static and change being something that has to be initiated and carried through and then completed and you know and then we're static again mm. or mm. frozen frozen as you as mm. you just said and that just does not gel with current reality does it and not just the pandemic the last few years organizations aren't static even the big organizations they're they're not static i think there's there's an external and there's an internal aspect to this discussion i think there's there's externally are we constantly looking at what could come down the line and affect us you know the sort of things jim collins talked about this sort of productive paranoia and he talks about the five stages of decline in an organization and you've got to be careful you're not in one of those stages and are you becoming a little bit too comfortable so are you recognizing what's going on in, in, in the environment we saw in the pandemic how some organizations were brilliant at just thinking right what do we do now and others were saying oh let's wait a bit and see what happens and so some came out of it brilliantly and some didn't come out of it so brilliantly and so there's the external pressures on us to make sure we're noticing and then there's the internal stuff where we say, well, maybe we need to change this, or maybe we need to create a creative culture. And we go back to the sort of challenge and stretch where people are coming up with new ideas and things we ought to do internally to make us grow and develop. And on top of all that, I'd probably throw in also, we need the growth mindset because we can't, we can't have an organization that's going to be adaptive to change unless our people are constantly growing and changing themselves and are in a great position to look at what's going on internally and externally. Well, I think it's all a, it's all a, a good question, really, isn't it? For for any top leader, what is our culture of change? Do we have a culture of change? What do we mean by that? What is our culture of change here? Are we are we in a place where we keep things fluid? We're always looking ahead and occasionally looking looking back and we're asking ourselves well what formation do we need to be in today you know and making those those adjustments and do we do we bring people into teams between teams out of teams you know keep changing it keep changing it up have we got a fluid culture or do we do we have something else do we have something that's much more fixed in some ways and it's not black and white it might be that we're you know we're very fixed in in our structure and locations mm. sort of physically quite fixed it might be that we've been very fixed for a long time in the particular market we're working with and maybe even particular customers who are prominent and dominant in in the mix for us and you know and these have become constants I, I, I don't hear people exploring this very often what is our culture of change what mm. does change around here what's becoming fixed around here and what do we think about that I think you're right I think it's funny when the pandemic started I remember 
going out and talking about leading change to some Vistage groups with my speaking hat on. And I did talk about Cotter's eight steps. And for those of you who don't understand it or know the eight steps, it's easy to Google and you'll come up with those eight steps. And they're great and they're very valuable even today. Absolutely. I would add a few things to them, but I think they're very, very good. What I did hear, funnily enough, anecdotally, that people were saying, oh, God, if we hear another person talk about Cotter's eight steps, you know, I'll kill myself. And, and I thought, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not that we don't understand a process sometimes, it's that we don't really implement it well. We don't get our people in terms of being flexible enough to understand that and creating a culture that is always changing. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to create cultures that change hour by hour, day by day, week by week, because that's how organizations are going to be fit for the future, not by something that we say, do you know what, we're okay till the next big pandemic comes along, or we're okay in terms of the next big technology that affects us. We have to evolve. Any business has to constantly evolve. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you're right, people are jaded about about change and they're jaded about the the different approaches to to do with change whether it's Cotter's eight steps or whether it's any of the flavors of of project management people are jaded and the reason they're jaded is so much change fails mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so intellectually we know these tools and frameworks are are good and useful however our experiences the majority of the time they don't work why is it they don't work? That's the big question. Why, it, why, do, why does change not work? My quick answer to that is change is underestimated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's much bigger than it's often given credit, credit mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. A change, uh, it's people, it's structure, it's purpose. It's also the the system that we're we're operating in. It's the it's the rest of the organisation and our customers. The things around the change that's not changing in the same way, but nevertheless create a momentum. And and it's way more than that as well. And time and again, I see an approach to change that addresses just one or two parts mm-hmm. of of this and this beautiful plan for the part of the change that has been thought about and somebody presses the go button and maybe hires a project manager or a change manager to to lead the thing and uh, and they expect it to to succeed but of course some of those unaddressed things appear as hurdles and roadblocks uh the change runs into some of the obstacles we knew would happen. It stutters and it stops. People are some somehow taken by surprise. Mm. By this. You know, change is underestimated. I think that's a great a great point, and it brings us back to it's so it's so useful to either have your version of Cotter's eight steps in your business, or just take it off the shelf and use it because it's there for a reason. And this guy's talk, thought about it a lot. Rather than keep mentioning it, let me just go through. In fact, let me give you a version of it. Which I, there's one thing I I looked at Cotter's eight steps a long time, and the eight steps are create a sense of urgency, you know, burning platform, bright future. In other words, we need to change, involve the right people, get a guiding coalition, as he talks about. 
so that you get accountability and people driving it. Then he talks about engaging people in the vision um, uh, and the priorities and the goals, getting buy-in, then communicate the plan, achieve that buy-in, communicate times seven, use all the channels available, get people involved, recognize and reward people. Number six, generate wins and shout about them. Then to your point, he talks about don't let up. Start phase two of the change, which is what people need to stop. And then he gets into embed the changes in the culture. And, and when I've seen people using these, either knowingly or unknowingly, they kind of give up too early. They stop too early. And Cotter does say about change, don't celebrate success too quickly in the process. Because and you've got to embed these changes in your business before you can really move on. And that may take quite a while. So those are the eight steps that Cotter talks about. Please look them up, download them. They're available everywhere. The piece I would add to it, I used to work for a business called Selamy, and we had a change spiral. And the change spiral was simpler than Cotter's, but I think fits with Cotter's nicely. And it basically says people need a reason to change. They need a why. They need the motivation, which could come from Cotter's creating a sense of urgency. Then it said, now you've got people's attention, you have to give them information. And from an organizational point of view, this is about the context for the change. Too often we go to people and we tell them what we want them to change to, rather than say why we need them to change. Because if we give them enough context, people go, I get it, I need to change. And they can come up with the what I need to change to, but we've got to go to the context first. So we give them the information, then people have got to process that information. They've got to create dialogues in your business. They've got to say, I see it, I understand it. If we do those first three steps well, the motivation, the information, and the process, guess what? Our people come to the right aha themselves. And what I learned in Selamy was that it's the bleeding obvious as a lot of these things are, is I can't give you my aha. You have to have your own. So leaders fail massively in change when they come out. They've already spent as a leadership team six months figuring out what to do. And they come out and they tell people what to do. They've forgotten that they took three of those six months to, to ask themselves the question of why are we doing this? And so you have to go out to your people when you're into the people side of change and spend a lot of time thinking about context and why. And then they will be with you on that journey. And so the aha leads to action, and that's the Selamy spiral that I think fits beautifully into the Cotter eight steps. Sound sounds good, Ian. Um, I wonder how many how many projects, how many changes are doomed from from the outset. And I mean, it's going to be a big number, I, I suspect. You know, if we if people were honest. And of course they're not. But if people were honest, they tell us that this change isn't going to mm. isn't going to work. But people don't like to stand in the way of change. Mm. You know, they they will be privately and quietly skeptical and not particularly engaged in the change. And they won't say, "Hang on, this this just mm. isn't." You know, this this isn't going to fly. It's going to be a damp damp squib. And that you know that that's. That's something we've got to bear in mind. People don't like to tell us early doors mm. that this change doesn't have conditions for for success. And I get what you were saying there, Ian, about Selamy's 
Mm. spiral is it a failure of leading the change or or is it a failure of of leadership because in a way if we have to create a sense of urgency if we have to create the burning platform what a, what a what a jaded term mm. um, but if we've got to do those things we've got to educate our our people isn't there something wrong here because surely our job as leaders is to be constantly telling the story of the organization where we've come from where we are now where we're going what are the choices coming up towards us beyond those choices what do we see in the future what are the moving parts what are some of the trends what are some of our wishes desires and if we're doing a good job of of telling that story and having that conversation frequently up and down, left and right, through the organisation, then nobody's taken by surprise when a change comes along. In fact, they don't think of it as a change. Mm. They think of it as the next step in this journey we're going on. And so the momentum the me- momentum is to change. Mm. I think you've hit one of the nails firmly on the head, which is too many leaders are not constantly engaging their people in the sorts of discussions they should be having at the leadership team, which is what's going on in the world, what things could uh, disrupt us, what are the brutal facts, how are we reacting to those, joining the dots of people, explaining the, the vision they've got, explaining where they are on that journey to the vision, explaining what could interrupt them on that journey, talking about the strategic priorities, the goals, the targets, you know, the one big thing, the focus. I think when all those things are happening, change becomes part of that journey, doesn't it? It becomes adapting to one of those things. It becomes very normal. And and the best organizations, they don't say, oh, we're going to use Cotter's eight steps now because we've got a change program coming along because it's automatic. People don't need to know these eight steps because they know it's a bit like values. You know, you don't go around and say, what are our five values? But people just talk about them. They talk about them in the language is right. And yep. I think it's the same yep. change, you know, you're absolutely right. So it is a kind of failure if you sort of sit there and think, right, we're going to go out, we're going to talk about these eight steps that people need to know and, you know, have them in the drawer get people used to it as you're saying it is a bit of a failure when you say i think we've got to create a burning platform here yeah i i'm i'm much more comfortable with the idea that we should be socializing our changes but we need to socialize them far sooner than often is is the case and and something else here i i used to ask a question you know one of my go-to questions used to be how do we generate a groundswell of support for this? Mm-hmm. However, I'm not sure it's the right question anymore. A better question is, do we have a groundswell of support for this? Because it gets me thinking about, well, what are the momentums in the organisation? Where is the support for for change? And how do we link into that how do we capture some of that momentum over here for the change that we'd like to we'd like to see i agree the one of the things cotter talks about which i think is very valuable is this guiding coalition which is step two involving the right people and one of the things i always talk to people about is whatever you're doing in a business you know if you've got a i was with a with a team last week running a session on creating a set of values. They're a very creative team. And they said to me, right, so who should we get in the room, Ian? And I said, right, 
what you need to do is get the leadership team and get some people who are real influencers in the business, who are informal leaders in the business into the room as well. I said, we can have up to 16 people in there and we'll, we'll have a great workshop and we'll end up creating a set of values for you. And why did I suggest that? Because, you know, we started off with a small leadership team at the wider because the process of getting values for an organization doesn't get accomplished in that workshop that afternoon. It gets accomplished when it, those people go back into the business and the business start talking about them and the business start recognizing who was involved. And those informal leaders go back and they say, oh, it's just in a workshop. And guess what? We, we've got this great set of values that really came out of our business. They weren't created externally. They really stand for what we're about. And they start talking about them. So they become the change agents to use a very old fashioned hackneyed term as well. But you're already planting the seeds. Those people are socializing the ideas. They're going back into the business. They're influencing people because that's what they are. They're informal leaders already. And I think when you're doing this, you know, creating this guiding coalition for whatever project you're in, think about who you're involving from within the business who's going to start that change process, that embedding, that socializing into the business. Yeah, Ian, I agree that's about involving involving people people like to make a choice actually so when we're involving them they make lots of choices they choose should it look like this should it look like that what's my part in this am i on board am i not bought on board so that socialization if it's early enough and it's done when the change is at a very formative point then then folk actually feel that they're participating in the choices mm. involved in the change. And quite often they will make their, their own choice mm. to be a part of the change. Also, if we, if we do that, purposes in the background of that, of course, something else naturally happens at that point, I think, which is we begin to create the bridges between what we're changing from and what we're changing two mm -hmm. you know, and yeah and part of that is how we're going to to work and what's our approach in the intervening period but there's another part of that sort of that bridge what i mean by a bridge is somebody commits to change and they go through a mental process of thinking okay well i'm here now i'm going to be there what's it going to be like in between and they work out the approach and what does this mean for me and how do i need to start to to adjust there's another thing that happened here which is, if we're clever about it, and I think this is so often forgotten, we think about, well, all the talk here is about the change, mm. but what is it that we're going to take with us? Mm -hmm. what, are, you know, what is it about our current situation that is good and wholesome and valuable and useful to us, and we're taking it with us? And that, I think, is so often... Uh, a missing element people are you know the resistance quite often isn't about the change itself it's about a lack of clarity mm. that we're going to take the other good stuff with us we're not leaving that behind mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're changing in one respect but we're continuing in the other and but people misread it they think actually we're changing away from that good stuff as well so so creating those bridges and taking stuff you know, knowing what we are going to maintain and continue and, and take with us and protect 
during the change is so important, I think. I think you're right. And it got me thinking, really, when one thing we haven't touched upon yet is, you know, individuals reaction to change. And we <clears throat> most people will, will know of the Kubler-Ross change curve uh, or adapted from the Kubler-Ross change curve. We use it as in the change process now. It was about a sort of bereavement originally, wasn't it, about people who. Yeah, were, yeah I think people um, people may not may not know it as the Kubler-Ross curve, no. but they, they will know the grief curve. Yeah, that's right. And I think you know the axes i put on that are the kind of the longer people have got a problem with the change and when i say problem i mean fear threat depression not buying in etc the longer you've got a disengagement in the business and i think again looking at that and this is an individual reaction and I think one of the interesting things about this, somebody once said to me that in the middle of a big change program in their business, what they did is they walked around with a little laminated card of the Kubler-Ross change curve. And they said, where are you? Because everyone knew the change was going on. And they said, where are you? Are you through this? Are you moving forward? Have you accepted what we're doing? Are you happy about it? Or are you actually still feeling there's a, there's a bit of fear factor here? Do you feel it's a bit of a threat to you? Where are you on this? And having a conversation with individuals who might be blocking the change, who just feel threatened by it, or just unhappy. Yeah, I do this with with leadership teams. Leaders can do it with their teams. It's a really nice uh, whiteboard exercise. Draw the curve. You know, Google the the grief cycle. Draw the curve up, and make that sign into your team's meeting. Okay, Ian, let's sign you in. Where are you on on the grief curve or the change curve with respect to the merger we've just mm. been through? And you might say, I'm um, frustrated, mm-hmm. not, not engaged with it yet. You know, whereas your neighbor might say, yeah, it's done. Mm. Mm-hmm. I accept that. Yeah, I'm beginning to to experiment with this, beginning to to move forward. And your two dots are in a different place on that on that change curve. And I think that's such a simple, healthy mm. exercise to do because it grounds us in the complex reality and messiness of how groups of people all change in different ways at different rates. That's right. And there's nothing wrong with saying. And if you've got that vulnerability-based trust we've spoken about before in the Lencioni podcast and in other podcasts where we talked about Brownie Brown, if you've got that there, there's nothing wrong with you saying, I'm still feeling threatened by this. I'm not that excited about it. And I, I, I really find it difficult to buy into why we've done this. And that's a great thing to get on the table. And that's one of those honest conversations because you know, actually, those people are just going to slow the whole thing down. And therefore, you've got to get that alignment and that clarity at the top. And you may have a situation where somebody's not going to buy into what you've done. And that might be a very difficult conversation, but you may have to have it about, are they still on the bus? Yeah, perhaps. There is one other thing I wanted to. When I was, again, going back through some of the stuff, I came across a case study I had pulled out and used to help people look at change and some people may have heard of this it's called the broken window theory 
Oh, um, Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani's uh, story from when he was mayor of New York. I was hoping you weren't going to mention Rudy Giuliani because he's got quite infamous now, hasn't he? But it, it, it is a fascinating story nonetheless. And there were two criminologists called Wilson and Kelling who developed this theory, this broken windows theory. They came into New York, they're invited in to look at what was going on. New York was the murder capital of the world back in the 80s, 1980s. It averaged well over 2000 murders a year. It was chaotic. And these two guys came in with this theory. And what the theory is in a nutshell is, if you're walking down a road and you see a broken window, then it's kind of okay to break another one. It's okay to drop a bit of litter. It's okay to say we're okay with a bit of graffiti. And so what you've got to do is start at the bottom and start repairing, start putting right the things that are not going well in your culture. And in this case, it was New York before you can address the murders. And so what they did is they started on the subway and they started cleaning up the subway and they did it in various ways. They, every time a subway train pulled in and all the subway trains in that time in New York were covered in graffiti. They were quite threatening. Going on a subway was not a pleasant thing. I remember doing it once with my mum all those years ago. And so every time a subway train pulled into a station, they would clean all the graffiti off it. And guess what? It would go out the following day and get covered in graffiti again. Mm -hmm. And it took years and years and years, which is something you touched on earlier about how long it takes to actually make change land. And so they didn't give up. The subway train came in again and they cleaned it up again and off it went again. And they kept on working on that. The other thing they did is uh, they called it the second stage was they figured out that an estimated uh, 170,000 people a day were beating the system on the subway. They were jumping over barriers, they were not paying, and they thought we need to crack down on this. And so what they did is one day all the police turned up at the subway stations and anyone doing what they'd done for months uh, or years, jumping over a barrier, trying to get away, they just arrested them. And they lined them up along the outside of the subway wall so everyone could see them name and shame the people who they were arresting. And the word got round and the press got hold of it, etc. What they found out, which they didn't expect, was that there's a huge correlation between the people they arrested for jumping over the barriers and, and getting free tickets with other um, burglaries and wrongdoing. So there's a big correlation going on here. Anyway, the long and the short of this thing was they carried on cleaning the subway and tackling all sorts of things across New York. And eventually the New York became a pleasant place to be. Murder, murder dropped and from a high in 1990, the crime rate plummeted. And by 2000, there were 75,000, sorry, 75% fewer crimes on the subway. And it had become the safest city in the US. And that's the broken window theory, an interesting one about change, about culture to think about in your organizations. Are there some smaller things that you need to tackle that would send a big message about the bigger things that would need to change in your organization? Fascinating thing. You can Google it. The broken window theory. Yeah, or read uh, Rudy Giuliani's book. The, the books are a really good book, actually. And I used to do this with with my my top management team we we would spend 15 minutes fairly frequently asking ourselves well what are the broken windows around here and which of these are we going to fix first 
Love it. Love it. And it was really healthy. And and I hadn't thought about it until today, as you told the story, Ian. It's one of the things that generated a sort of a culture of fluidity in in our our business and being switched on to the the little things. But what I get as as I listen to the story today, whilst we're talking about why change fails, is that that there's something often so counterintuitive about what's going on with a change. Mm-hmm. And I think it always pays off to, to step back if things aren't going right and step back and ask, you know, and spend, you know, and allow a good half hour for the question as well. Ask, um, what's the sticking point here? What are all of the sticking points here? What is it that's going on that's, that's getting in the way of this change and you know and almost discipline yourself or you know or add an extra line to the question mm-hmm. which is and by the way it's not the obvious mm-hmm. you know, yes yeah. spend that extra time expect it to be counterintuitive really search hard and deep what's actually getting in the way yeah a bit like what's slowing down our flywheel if you're if you're using the flywheel concept in an organization what's the thing that's stopping this whole thing turning this whole change being implemented no i completely agree yeah so what's left on this subject ben have you got anything else to throw on the table well hey it's it's such a a big topic isn't it and before we started and you know you and i were talking as we normally do for 15 minutes and asking ourselves what's the gritty topic here because there's so much to talk about you know we could spend mm. you know, we, we could launch a whole new podcast about different change frameworks and how mm. to do change and we asked ourselves what what's the gritty topic here and you know and and we we decided well actually it's that most change most change fails so do you know what i think we said enough we should stop here and for for me you know we one of the things about change is we need to cut through it there's plenty of professionals out there there's plenty of of frameworks uh, out there there's tons of ways to do it there's experts left right and center in our in our organization so we need to stop thinking about change in that way we've got you know we've got a good capability to do change and what we need to do is we need to start thinking about do we have fluidity in our organization? How do we attach this change into where we're going, what we need to do, what we're going to do? And as we get on with it, we need to be thinking counterintuitively, what's going to trip us up here? What's going to blindside us here? If this one is stuck in the mud, why mm, mm, yeah. mm. how has it got stuck in the mud not why because that that kind of demands a, a justification almost a uh, better question i think is is how are we bogged down mm-hmm. you know what what's the what's the big picture and and i th- i think that's what's that's what's needed here you know ch- change isn't about change change is about uh, a much bigger much more complex counterintuitive awareness and 
engagement with what's going on. Yeah, the big thing for me during this discussion is that if you're searching for a framework because you're not very good at change, what you need to do is bring it in and make it a part of the way you work. It needs to be in the fabric of your business. Everyone needs to understand people. You need to have systems. You need to have capability and capacity and understand what could affect you both internally and externally. And it just needs to be part of the way you work as a business, not something you kind of grab the framework for occasionally because something's happening. Yeah, and you know what? Don't change too much at once. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we talked about having a fluid organization. We talked about, you know, always adjusting our formation, if, if you like. However, when there is big change happening, acknowledge just how consuming and involving mm. change is. And don't try and change too much at once. Yeah. One or two big things tops. And and don't exhaust people with little changes either. You know, if you've changed ten IT systems in the last <laughs> in the last ten months, well guess what? People are going to be cynical and fatigued before they get into the change that's actually the important change of the year. So don't change too much and beware change fatigue. Very good advice, sir. So should we wrap it up then? Yeah, let's knock this one on the head. Great, good. Well, hope everyone got something out of that. As usual, get in touch with ben at benwales.com or ian at ianwindle.com. Review us on the podcast. We love your reviews and we love your questions. So please give us your questions, give us any feedback and carry on listening. See you in two weeks, Ian. Cheers, Ben. Bye.